You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We've been working through this epic journey, right, of being drawn closer to God, and today we're uh, at the end of chapter 2. So let's draw our attention to Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, and we will read God's word. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is God's word. Maybe you remember uh, earlier, actually last year, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this town called New Rochelle. Still is a town in New York, but it became basically uh, ground zero for the pandemic in the U.S. And in New York, there was this man who's patient zero. He's kind of known as patient zero, one of the first in the U.S. to get COVID. And he became very ill and was in a coma for three weeks. And they did a big special on this guy talking about his life. He ended up surviving and coming out of the coma. This was a man who was a lawyer in New York. He was overworked and tired, kind of a typical lifestyle of someone you might come to expect of, of a man with that kind of profession. And he had four kids and a, and a wife, but was rarely a part of their lives, and, and life was hard. And he woke up from the coma, and he felt immensely blessed and grateful and felt that God was giving him a second chance. He felt that God was giving him an opportunity to look differently at his life and to treat others differently. He wanted to use this second chance at life, having escaped death and the fear of death and loving his his wife and being a more present father and taking every day as a gift and not taking it for granted. These are good stories. These are the kind of the stories that you come to, to expect or even hope to expect when you see somebody that uh, has a near-death experience. But imagine if the outcome was a little different. Doctors and nurses spend millions of dollars trying to preserve the life of this man and to bring him back uh, t- into consciousness. And a city rallies around him, and people are praying for him around the clock, and he survives. He wakes up and becomes a very angry man and bitter man. He leaves his family. He spends the rest of his days, you know, buying alcohol for teenagers or something like that. What a tragedy, right? This would be a failure. This would be a sense of, but you had so much going for you. You wasted your second chance 
at life. Well, instead of a story of redemption, that would be a story of failure. A man who has everything kind of handed to him and wastes it. This is what's going on with Moses. This is the story that we have with him. A story of failure is exactly the kind of story uh, that Moses finds himself in at this point. He had so much going for him. Moses was born under a death sentence. He was born at a time when the king said, kill every boy that is born. And yet his life was preserved. He was hidden. He was spared. He was raised by his own mother. He would be protected by the king. And we see, as we learned last week, as we went through this uh, passage earlier, that God is intimately involved in even the details of Moses' life to, to keep him alive and to preserve him because God was preparing him to save his people. Moses had the best training that was available to him to be a public, uh, a, a productive and flourishing citizen. He had the best education. Literally life handed to him on a silver platter, probably even a gold platter at that time. Think about Moses. Every chance to succeed, a man of great potential. God is working in wonderful ways in the life of Moses. He wakes up one day, has breakfast, gets in a fight, murders a man, hides the body, is a fugitive on the run, and spends 40 years in the desert. It's almost too hard to believe. If you were hearing this story for the first time and knowing what you know about Moses at the beginning of his life, you're thinking, this man is set up for greatness. God is using him and creating his life and working through his circumstances, and he's going to be somebody. And then you see that this happens, there would be this deep sigh of sadness come over you. What a waste. What a failure. This is not the way it's supposed to go. In the epic story of the Jewish exodus, In this story, this is where the plot begins to thicken, as they say. And like any important story that needs to be told, character development is essential. And it's here we see God's word put a spotlight on the life of Moses. Who is he? What is he like? What's his character? What is he doing? It's so important for us. You you wouldn't know it, but this, this passage that we read spans 40 years. 40 years of his life is covered And we learn virtually nothing of his details of his life, but the information we are told is so important. Moses would eventually be the human savior of God's people, and this spotlight on who he is now is critical. And so what is happening here in this passage, what we want to see is how this idea of salvation is, and our understanding of salvation is being expanded. Here we're learning three things about the the human savior, the need for a Savior. We're going to learn the character of the Savior by looking at Moses. And then we're going to learn the way of a Savior that Moses offers that proves to be futile and a failure. Let's look at our, the need for a Savior that Moses kind of finds himself in here in this, at this point. Up to this point, the kind of rescue the Hebrews needed was a rescue from human oppression. This is evident, right? We know that they're enslaved. We know that they're oppressed. We know that there is genocide going on. Everything that the Egyptian government is trying to do is trying to oppress, kill, and destroy the Egyptian people. And so what kind of salvation do they need? Well, they obviously need rescue from that kind of oppression. But we're introduced in this passage to another kind of rescue needed. Not only did they need to be rescued from Egypt, they needed to be rescued from one another. It didn't surprise Moses to go out and to see an Egyptian uh, bullying and oppressing a Hebrew slave. 
but it did seem like a huge surprise to him to see a Hebrew slave fighting with another Hebrew slave. Historians, secular historians, have have found manuscripts describing the way of life for an Egyptian during these times when the Hebrews were there in Egypt. And the the Egyptians had utter contempt for the Hebrew people. They were called the the living dead. They called the, the Hebrew people the living dead. Because they worked outside and were covered with dust and, and, and it looked like they were, had ash all over them, ash from like the dead. And so they called them the living dead because they were malnourished, they were skinny, they were the skin and bones. They looked like zombies. And the Egyptian way of life was so different from the Hebrew way of life and especially a life of slavery The Egyptian way of life led to self-centered pride. It led to a good education. It led to power. It led to a way of life that reinforced violence against those who did not have power. And so the way of life for the Egyptian was go to school, be educated, and and then then oppress those who are not like you and who don't have power. After living in, in a in a time, uh, in a culture like this, it was so common to see an Egyptian demeaning the life of a Hebrew. But if you look at verse 13, it says, when he, speaking of Moses, went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? This is a more shocking of a situation. He's thinking, I get how the Egyptians are raised to kind of demean and oppress you, but now you are going at one another. You're fighting and and hurting one another. You're bullying one another. God has, has created a people for himself. He has brought you together so that you would build up one another, but you're now tearing down each other. These two words that that are used in this passage give us great insight into what's happening. Why would you do this to your companion? This is more than just this observation of like friendship. Why would you do this to the person the person that God has brought to you to build you up? You are now tearing down. Why would you do this? It showed the extent of sin that it had. No longer was this, this need for rescue from those who do things to you, but it was a need for rescue between, because of what was between them, person to person. Secular historians have kind of learned like, what they, we actually know what they were fighting about. One of them wouldn't wear a mask. And he's like, what are you doing? And so you see this, I hope you see this connection here, is Moses is saying, I get how there's things that you cannot control that will hurt you and oppress you. There's sickness, there's oppression, there's injustice. But you, God has brought you together. You are the family of God to build up, to serve, to bear the burdens of one another. But you're tearing each other down. And he's thinking, why would you do this? And so I hope you see what God's word is doing here. He's wanting us to expand our understanding of the things that that put people in bondage to sin. It's not just those bad people who do things to us. We do it to one another. We are given to one another. God's people, the church, we're given to one another to build up, to sharpen. But we bicker, we fight, we tear each other down, we separate, we divide. Their bondage in Egypt was physical, it was spiritual, it was emotional, it was relational. This passage seeks to enlarge our understanding for how a person can be held captive to sin and in need of rescue. 
It's as if Moses is saying, I get it. We all understand. We, you need a savior. You need a rescuer because you are being oppressed by the Egyptians, but you need a rescuer because you are, you're being oppressed by each other. Obviously, there's bad people in the world who do bad things. There's no disputing that. I mean, Jesus needs to come for those people, right? Amen? Am I right? All those people. Jesus needs to come and rescue us from them. But this is expanding our understanding that he needs to rescue us from us, from ourselves. Who are the people that come to mind when you think about the reason why Jesus had to come? When you think of sin in the world, what actions, what thoughts, what behavior comes to mind? Are they your actions, your thoughts that you do to one another? There's no doubt of the wickedness of an injustice of those on the outside of Egypt and the oppression of the Hebrew people. But lest we think that rescue is needed only for us against them, we're given two reasons we need a Savior. There's a sin because of us, and there's a sin within us. You can hear the irony in Moses' voice. Why are you fighting with your companion? There's wickedness outside. There's wickedness because there's also wickedness within. These three sources of, of oppression, people who do bad things to us, and we have our list. The things we do to each other, if we're thoughtful enough and honest, we can come up with a list of all the ways that we demean, the way that we tear down, the way that we lack love, grace, charity, uh, patience. And then there's this sin within. There's, something, there's a war that rages in us, this hatred in our heart. There's lust. There's there's envy. Our sins are more numerous than we could ever count. And we need a Savior. And Moses, Moses shows us this. There's a battle within the heart of Moses. He's filled with rage and the sense of justice. He goes and commits murder. He looks this way and that. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He kills a man. He hides the body. He buries it in the sand. And he's filled with fear that it's gone public, that he's caught, and he flees. There is this psychological, emotional struggle within him. There's something inside of Moses that is, is, is spilling out and creating a life of wickedness. So the, the, the need for a rescuer is pervasive. And so we shouldn't look at the, the Old Testament and say, well, the Old Testament were like physical outward sins, and, and, and the New Testament speaks of more of a heart sin. We see this pervasive nature of sin all throughout Scripture. There's bad things that happen to us. There's bad things we do to each other. And there's something bad inside of us. And God needs to send a rescuer to fix all three. We are in need of rescue from the bondage of Satan, and it reaches every part of our lives. The wickedness outside of us, the wickedness because of us, and the wickedness within us. We need a Savior to free us from us, not just from the bad that is done to us. And we're given a picture of what this kind of Savior will be. That's why we're given Moses. He's a type of Savior, a type of Redeemer and Rescuer. And when we look at this spotlight that is on Moses, we see a character portrait of the kind of man that God is choosing to use to save his people. 
Not all Moses does is failure. There is some terrific, admirable qualities. Let's look at some of these. I bet if I asked you, you could look at this passage and just start to spit out some just great characteristics of Moses. You could easily draw out some of those admirable traits that he has that make a person well-suited to be a human savior. One would be compassion. Look at verse 11. He goes out to his people. He sees their struggle. He looks on their burdens. This isn't just a, a mere like, mental observation. He doesn't just go and like, take note of it. He feels it. Deep inside of himself, it's a kind of movement in the heart that causes him to look beyond his own interests towards the interests of others. And he looks at God's people and he says, these are my people and they are hurting and I hurt with them. Moses is a compassionate man. He, his heart bleeds for them. He feels deeply for them. We also see this trait that he's also a mediator, one that gets in between two people to seek peace and reconciliation in verse 13. What does he do when he sees those he cares about, his people, fighting with one another? He literally gets between two of them, like breaking up a fight. You can imagine it in your head. What are you doing? God has put you together to to build one another up. Let's seek peace with each other. He is a mediator. I don't say he's a good mediator. This mediation ends in in failure. But there's something inside of Moses that rushes into the chaos. He rushes into the conflict. And he says there's a way to make this right. He, He often will put himself in harm's way in order to bring people together rather than to let them divide each other. He fights for those who can't fight for themselves. Don't you love that, that, that story that plays out in verse 17? These seven daughters, right? Seven daughters go take the, their father's flock to feed their flock at this watering hole. The shepherds come and they bully these women. And Moses jumps in there. You kind of wonder, well, this had to, what did he do? He takes on all these shepherds that are numerous enough to, to bully, manipulate, and harm these, these uh, women, these powerless women, And he gets in, and not only does he do that, but he protects them, and he waters the flock himself. He draws out the water, and he takes care of them. He does such a good job to care for those who are powerless that the dad says, hey, who wants them? (laughs) What a great guy. This is a great characteristic for a husband. Three times in our passage, passage, Moses puts himself in the middle of conflict at great risk to his own life, for the good of others. And I bet this wasn't the only three times. This wasn't the only three times he did that. These weren't isolated, one-off times. I mean, this is like who Moses is. He is the kind of guy who runs into the fire to rescue somebody that's hurting. He is the kind of guy who puts his life at risk to help others. He is the kind of guy who looks at the suffering of others and says, well, not my fault. He's the one who runs into it and takes on their burdens. He's also a sojourner. He identifies as one who has no place to call their home. Moses identifies with this experience so deeply that he is a foreigner in a foreign land, that he has a child, and he says, I'm going to name you Gershom, which means stranger in a strange land. Moses identifies with this experience of being homeless, kind of like no place to have peace, no place to have a home. I know where I come from. I know where I'm going, but I'm stuck in this middle with no place to lay my head. It's, it's a kind of person who leaves the comfort of their own home to just be like in orbit in their life. 
in no man's land. Now we, we see, this is where the, we can see a tension in the scripture. Moses is a great guy. We want to be like Moses. We want to, we want, we have, he has admirable traits of Moses. But the, the more we, we learn about Moses, the more we see how tragic his mistake was. Moses was a guy who hated injustice. He hated slavery. He fought against it. He had compassion and sympathy for those who struggle. He had deep affection for God's people. And there was something in, inside Moses that couldn't sit idly by when the weak and powerless were being beaten, destroyed, and taken advantage of. Advantage of. And some of you might even justify his murder and say, that Egyptian got what was coming to him, and this is a justifiable murder Maybe it was even self-defense. There was no wrong in what Moses did. But we know that this was a great mistake and great sin of Moses's. We learn in the New Testament when great, more clarity is given on these events that this was a sin that God disciplined Moses for. And no greater sign of his failure to receive or how long God sent him into the desert and into exile. Forty years he was in the desert before God would give him another opportunity to be faithful. Forty years. God did not commend his actions. God punished his actions because they were sinful. So Moses was so plainly the right man for the job that God was preparing him for. But because when salvation would finally come to God's people, there was something about Moses that he needed to learn. When, when salvation would come, God wanted to make sure that salvation would be secured, not through the hands of Moses, but through his own hands. That it would not come because of Moses securing it, but God securing it for his people. It wouldn't come through our human effort, but it would come through God sovereignly, providentially entering in himself and rescuing his people. And this dilemma was caused for Moses because he attempted to secure the salvation of God's people on his own. What was he thinking? Was he going to kill every Egyptian one at a time? Was he, he was taking matters into his own hands. He was seeing the oppression. He was seeing the hatred. He was seeing the injustice. And he was saying, I can fix this. And God said, no, you can't. And Moses needed to learn what it meant to walk by faith. Moses needed to learn how to live his life and to trust in God and God's way, not his own way. And that's where we see this major difference in our final point, the way of a Savior. We have Moses' way of doing things which led to failure, and we have God's way of doing things which led to redemption, led to salvation. How could Moses, how could he lead an entire nation out of slavery when he tried to just secure peace for two of his own people, and that failed miserably? God was preparing Moses to rescue his people, but he had to learn an important lesson, 40 years of learning to be precise. His first attempt to rescue God's people from slavery ended in fail failure, but God was planning to save his people. And Moses was still the right man for the job. Moses was still part of God's plan to save his people. And already Moses is learning that salvation does not come by works. Salvation does not come from manipulating it out of God's hand. Salvation doesn't come by grabbing it, trying harder, and forcing others to obey. Now he had to go into the wilderness to learn how to live by faith. 
No one can blame Moses for his actions. Can you? I mean, I don't blame him. I don't blame him for his, his actions, his, his, his motivation, his heart was in the right place. But the way he went about securing salvation was not the way of faith. The closing verse in our passage is a sad reality of Moses' failure. We're looking at this tragic story of a man who's given life on a gold platter and he just ruins it. His name's his son, Stranger in a Strange Land. What is Moses doing here by naming his son that? It's kind of depressing. Moses is, he's resigning. He's kind of throwing his hands up. He's literally, he's buried his ambitions deep in the sand with the guy he killed. He's saying, you know what, there was once a time where I felt that God was going to use me, where I could enter into the pain of my people and help them, but you know what, I'm done with it. There once was a time when I cared, but I don't care anymore. Moses is giving up. He, he is giving himself over to a life of obscurity, a life of solitude, a life of failure, and he's saying, this is just the kind of person I am. I'm a screw-up, and, and I'm just going to go away where I can't fail anybody anymore. I just want to go to a place where no one knows me, and I could finally be at peace. Is that line in any of your journals? Have you ever felt that way? It's just too hard. I just want to disappear. Do you feel that way now? Have you ever felt that way in your life? Sometimes, maybe just a little bit, where you want to be like Moses and say, I'm just, I just want to go away. I want to throw up my hands. I want to run off into the desert. I want to find some shepherd girl or some shepherd boy, have a couple kids, never to disappoint anyone any, any, anymore, no obligation, total freedom, there's nothing more I can fail at. I just want to disappear. And this is pretty much every theme of every country song you've ever heard. I want to run off with a shepherd girl, have a couple kids, and never mess up anymore. That's the life, right? God, of course, has different intentions for Moses, and he has different intentions for you. See, we... We know the rest of the Exodus story. We have dozen Sundays to actually work through it and to tell this story. But we know that God takes Moses the failure, the one who is born into greatness, the one who's handed life and is a man of great potential and throws it all away. And he takes Moses the failure. He teaches Moses the failure how to live a life of faith. And he turns him into Moses the Redeemer. And not only do we have this story to see, but we have a greater story of God's redemptive plans worked out in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Could it be that Moses' suffering, his loneliness in the desert, his failure to, to walk by faith is the same purpose for which you are experiencing loneliness, failure, rejection, and that is to be taught how to live and walk by faith with a God who takes the failure and takes the one who is given up and redeems them, rescues them, saves them. Maybe he's teaching you how to live by faith. Today is Palm Sunday, the week before the resurrection, which corresponds to this day, and Jesus enters into Jerusalem. It's kind of the first day of the last week of his life. And he walks, he, he rides into Jerusalem to basically to go to the cross. 
And he enters in and he's celebrated by the Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people are saying, finally a Savior has come. A Savior, our rescuer. And they cry out, Hosanna, praise God for the one that God promised to save us has come. The one to who, the, that Moses talked about, the one that Moses taught us about, the, the final Redeemer is here. And let me draw you the, the, an appropriate line between the way of Moses and the way of Jesus as the Redeemer. Jesus came into Jerusalem that day fulfilling a prophecy that was made hundreds of years prior. And that prophecy was the one who would come in would conquer our enemies. He would protect us. He would set the prisoner free. He would end the grief that all of us experience. He would, he would solve the sin problem between us. And so the, this prophecy was, was proclaimed that, that, that the one would come in and cure and set us free from the bondage of sin as far as it goes in those three areas, right? The sin outside of us, there's people that hate us and oppress us. The sin between us and the sin within us. And there's, there's a Savior coming. And they saw it as Jesus, and they celebrated. And then Jesus, he rides into town on a donkey. Not as a commanding king, but as a suffering servant. Not riding in on a war horse with weapons and with armor. He rides in on a donkey, exposed and suffering. Jesus is forcing an issue for, for all the people to see the way of salvation and forcing us to see the way of salvation for us. For how he will save his people and take away our grief and to rescue us from bondage of sin and to bring us home to himself is not Moses' way. Moses attempted to save God's people by going to war with the enemy and by fighting with them, Jesus saves his people by going to the cross and giving his life for us. You see, right in the middle of this story in Moses, we have every reason why you and I need the gospel. Salvation doesn't come to us by taking it. Moses was a great man and a, and a complete failure and shows us exactly why we need a savior because it's we need a rescue not just because of bad people doing bad things to us we need rescue because of the bad within us and between us and to be saved a lot of times we rationalize it like this if my sinful behavior got me into this problem and that content condemns me then my righteous behavior is what will save me we try to re reverse the, the order of our behavior and say, I'll be saved by changing my behavior. If I'm exiled because I killed a man, then if I just don't kill anybody anymore, then maybe I can be saved. Moses know this is, knows it's impossible. I'll find salvation through being obedient or through pleasing God through my changed life. But none of that works. Nothing can cover up the failures in our life. Nothing can cover up in what breaks us but that's not what Christianity teaches. That's not what Jesus has come to teach us, that we can just change our behavior to be saved. Salvation is found when the king comes, rides into town, and the king puts himself in the place of the servant, in place of the sinner, and the, and the sinner takes the place of the king. Salvation doesn't come in what we can accomplish. Salvation comes in what Christ has accomplished for us. Moses shows us what kind of savior we're to be looking for, but he doesn't show us how to get it. He shows us the portrait of the one who will save us, but he shows us how utterly incapable we are to secure it ourselves. 
You see, look at Jesus in comparison to Moses. We are meant to look and see these good comparisons. Like Moses, Jesus looks on the suffering of his people. He sees them hurting, and he sees their inability to do anything about it, and he has compassion on us. He has pity for us. He has love that overflows for us. He feels our pain and, and, and sits with us in our agony. He's filled with justice to right the wrongs that have been committed. He's consumed with sympathy that grie- all, for all that grieves us. He leaves the comfort of heaven to take the life of a slave. He becomes a sojourner, a stranger in a strange land. But where Moses would fail, Jesus would succeed. He looked upon our suffering. He looked at our failures. And like Moses, he was thrust into our pain at great expense to himself. But where Moses failed, Jesus wins. He enters into our suffering. He becomes a man, experiences the pain and humiliation of the human life, the agony of of being in flesh and bones, of being rejected and betrayed, from experience oppression from the outside, from experiencing the brokenness of relationship between him and his people. He experienced all of it. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, yet never sinned. And then he went to the cross, bearing our sins. Let me ask you a question. This may feel like a question to ask way too early in the morning. (laughs) Have you ever wanted to kill somebody? I mean, in your heart, have you ever wanted someone to die? Have you ever been filled with such anger, such sadness, such frustration, such bitterness that you just wanted bad things to happen to that person? Have you ever hated yourself so much that you, just, that you wanted to die? Ha- have you ever felt so much in despair that you wanted to give up everything that you ever cared about? You know, Moses actually followed through. That, that, that pain in his heart and the bitterness in his heart, the anger that he felt because of the, the, the injustice, the oppression of his people, of what maybe he felt God acting too, too slowly, all of that wrapped up in his heart, he actually acted it out and murdered somebody, hid the body, and ran away. You see, when we look at Jesus, we can't just look at Jesus and say, what a great guy, I want to be more like him. We can't look at Moses and say, what a great guy, I want to be like him. He killed a man. We, when we look at Jesus, we have to either reject him or we have to worship him. Those are the only options that he gives us. We can't just say, you're a good guy, I want to follow you. Because he went to the cross for us. He bore our sin to take away our guilt, to take away our shame. Picture this. Picture all that you are guilty of. And not just the stuff that's known by others, the private stuff too. All that gives you shame, all that makes you feel guilty, all that makes you feel like a failure, all that God has given you and blessed you with, that he's kind of teed you up for great potential that you have wasted, all the ways that that you have spoken that you wish you could take back, all the words and things that you've done that you wish that you didn't do. He takes all of that to the cross. He shows us the way of a Savior is not to one by one changing those behaviors, changing those words. You cannot bring salvation by doing that. 
It's impossible. The way he shows us that we are saved is he goes to the cross and he dies for our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He washes it clean. He makes us pure. And Jesus enters into our situation in a way that no other human Savior could. Because he lived a perfect life, he was the only one equipped to die for our sins. Moses shows us that not even, not even Moses, who was raised in the palace with all the best skills and all the resources of Egypt at his disposal, he could not save them. And we can't save ourselves either. Jesus enters into our situation like no one else ever could. He substitutes himself for us. He is alienated so that we could be befriended by God. He is rejected so that we could be accepted. He's abandoned so that we could be pursued. Jesus invites us to give up the idea that salvation can be manipulated from God's hands as if we can trick him into giving it to us because for what we do. Forgiveness cannot be earned from him. Jesus, the king, the true king, comes and puts himself in the place of a sinner. He comes to put himself in the place that, that where you and I belong to be. We belong to be on the cross. We belong to take our punishment for our sin. We belong to come before God and be judged for everything we've done wrong. But this is the great reversal. All that is deserved to us, Jesus runs into the chaos of our life as a compassionate Savior, and he dies for us. He takes our sins so that we could take his righteousness. Do you see that when his grace is poured out on us and we receive this by faith and rest in his work on the cross, God looks at us as if we've never done anything wrong, that we've never been in a position of guilt and we have no reason for shame. For all of those sins against us, he promises to fully one day protect us and and save us for all of the brokenness between us and other people he will restore but the things we probably feel most of is that pain deep inside where we are convinced that we are unlovable jesus says i would love you to the uttermost and i will complete the work i have begun in you He does that. He dies on the cross for us in our place so that by grace through faith we can be where he deserves to be in the glory and love of God. You see, Moses gives us a great picture for the kind of Savior we need, but a horrible way of going about it. We look at Jesus. We see him as our compassionate Savior who runs into our life, who saves us. And the only way to receive it to empty our hands of our self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency, and our way about going to get it and trust in him. 